So as we're kicking off the Advent season, um, we are also kicking off a new sermon series. So our sermon series leading up to Christmas is The Arrival, um, where we will be looking at um, the ways that the four different gospel writers, um, the men that wrote four different accounts of Jesus's life, the way that they introduced the arrival of Jesus onto the scene. Um, one of those, or two of those accounts start with Jesus's birth. Um, one of the accounts begins with John the Baptist and Jesus as an adult, so just skips over his childhood. And one account begins with poetry. Um, all of those accounts telling the story of Jesus's arrival onto the scene. Um, and so as we are in this season of Advent together, we are going to be um, exploring what it looks like for Jesus to arrive in this season of Advent, literally a season of waiting. Now, when you think of waiting, I'm going to say, venture out on a limb here and say that most of us are not very good at waiting, right? Most of us are not very good at waiting. Time just seems to stretch on forever when you're waiting. It just feels like there's going to be no end in sight. When I think about waiting, I think about uh, Christmas last year, Christmas 2022, uh, and literally Christmas morning, um, my family, we woke up really early that morning so that we could get to the airport, um, San Diego airport, so we could fly up to Washington State and be with my family um, for Christmas dinner. So we had our flights all lined up so that we could get there in time for Christmas dinner. Now we get to the San Diego airport and right off the bat, flights are being delayed. And so we had to wait for our flight and we're thinking, okay, we've got a layover. Um, we have a layover and so we're not sure, right, if our first flight is delayed, if we're gonna make it on to our second. But we did make it out of San Diego. We landed in Sacramento. And when we're sitting there in the airport in Sacramento, we're checking our phones for the flight status of the flight that's gonna take us to the SeaTac airport. And as we're sitting there, we just see the wait time going up and up and up. Every time we checked the flight status, it was another 15 minutes delayed, another 30 minutes delayed. And at some point, you know, we'd been there for two hours and the flight time for the arrival had gone up even longer than that. And, you know, it didn't matter how long we waited, the length of time that we still had left kept rising, <laughs> kept rising higher and higher. And finally, around dinner time, we tur I turned to Vince and like, I don't think we're going to get out of this airport. And I don't think all of these other hundreds of people that are packed in around us are going to get out of this airport. And so eventually we ran over to the, um, the car rental place in the airport. We're like, let's get a car before everyone else realizes they're not making it out of, out of the airport. So we were able to drive um, the rest of the way up to Washington. We missed Christmas dinner, but we were at least there the day after Christmas. But it was a long day of waiting. And let me tell you, two little kids in an airport on Christmas day, trying to explain to them that 
eventually, eventually we're going to make it out, um, isn't it, is not very good. But hope begins to diminish when you're just waiting with no, with no end in sight. It seems like there's nothing, when you're waiting for something that isn't really, there's not a, a, a sign of anything good on the other end of your waiting, right? Like when you're at the DMV, right? That kind of waiting where there's not even an exciting, you know, Christmas dinner on the other end is just waiting for waiting's sake, right? Waiting on bureaucracy. Hope diminishes um, and the waiting just seems to drag on forever. It's like being stuck on the five freeway headed to LA, right? A trip that should take around two hours and when it's starting to take like three and four and five, right? It's, it's that kind of frustrating waiting. The kind of waiting that, that kills us. The kind of waiting with no end in sight. There, if, I, if I know the time frame of my waiting, I can usually, you know, muscle through, right? If I go to, if I maybe call into the, the nurse hotline in the middle of the night and they say, your wait time is 15 minutes, thinking I can wait 15 minutes to talk to a nurse about my child's sickness in the middle of the night. But as soon as you get over that 15 minute mark, what do you feel like inside? <laughs> Right? When the time frame that you thought you had to make it begins to extend longer and longer, how do, how do we deal with that kind of waiting? That's the reason that um, seating hostesses at, or seating hosts at restaurants, they'll always overestimate the amount of time that it's going to be before you get a table. Right? Because they know that if they tell you a table's going to be ready for you in 10 minutes, and it takes 11 minutes, right? You're gonna be really frustrated, but nobody's ever angry if you tell them you're gonna to have to wait 20 minutes for a table. And then 10 minutes later, like, hey, guess what? There's a table ready for you. I know this because when I was in high school, I got to um, be a host at Cracker Barrel. And let me tell you, you do not wanna stand between people and their Saturday morning breakfast. Right? And people are waiting for their Saturday morning breakfast at Cracker Barrel. They do not want to wait one minute longer than you promised them. In our scripture today, um, Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We, be. we see how Matthew begins his account of Jesus' arrival with a genealogy. Representing generations and centuries of waiting for the promise of God's Messiah to come about. When we look at the, the pages in our Bible where this genealogy is listed, you know, it's really only just a, a column on a page. But this column on a page represents so many lives, so many lives spent waiting on God to fulfill his promises to Israel. Genealogies to us are kind of boring, right? Is it okay if we say that? Yeah. All right, okay. How many of us would be brave enough to admit that when you come across genealogies in Scripture, especially like the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, has a lot of them. And how many of us would say, like, I tend to skip those or at best, like, skim read them? 
right? Because the names don't really mean anything to most of us. There might be a couple of names that we recognize from some Bible stories, but for the most part, the names don't mean anything to us. But for the original audience, man, these genealogies in Scripture would be exciting, right? We find them boring, but the original audience would have found them to be really exciting. The names don't mean anything to us, but Matthew's original listeners or readers um, would have known these names really well. You ever watch those recap videos when you start a new season of a TV show? Or maybe if, you're, if a new Marvel movie or Star Wars movie comes out, right, and you're like, I have no idea what happened in the last one. This is what I have to do. Anytime a new Marvel movie is like, I don't remember who these people are and what happened in the last movie. Did the world end? Was it like, did people travel through time? What happened? So I have to watch these recap videos um, to be able to, to get caught up on what was happening in, in the, all of the other movies or the last season of a TV show. Now, the genealogies in Scripture work in, in a similar way kind of as these recap videos. And the way they work is that in recap videos, we're able to just see snippets of the story, right? And it triggers in our mind uh, the memories of what the whole story was. And similarly for, um, for the ancient audience, they would read these genealogies and just hearing the names alone would, bring, would flood back to their mind the stories of each of those people. And not just stories of an individual, but the stories of God's faithfulness and God's promises to his people through all of these generations. It would have brought to mind not only God's faithfulness, but humanity's own mixture of, of faithfulness and faithlessness. Right? When they heard these names or saw these names written out, it would be just like those recap videos bringing to mind the whole story. And so again, when we, when we look at genealogies, we think of them um, kind of more like Ancestry.com, like in a very scientific way of looking at genealogies. We want, um, we use genealogies to, to trace a lineage, to find out like who our great-great-grandparents were and what country they lived in, what year they were born, um, what year they died. But for the ancient people, genealogies throughout scripture were more than that. It wasn't just a scientific way of trying to keep track of their genealogy, but it was more about theology, about telling a story about God. And so authors throughout scripture would use these lists of, of human families um, to tell specific stories about God, about who he was, and about how he interacted with humanity and about humanity's responsiveness to God. And so this list of names that we're looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 1 um, is more than just names, but it's a summing up of each of these stories, a line of God's promises and humanity's responsiveness to him. And so it begins here in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 1, um, by saying an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And right off the bat, um, we get a really unique version of a genealogy. Normally in scripture, you'll notice that genealogies um, begin with a person and then list all of their descendants. But what do we get here? We get the descendant and then a list of all of their ancestors. It's almost like Matthew is turning the genealogy on its head and showing that all of human history points to Jesus. And so instead of the patriarch giving meaning to all of his ancestors or all of his descendants, we see Jesus giving meaning to all of the patriarchs that came before him. And then Matthew specifically mentions here at the beginning, um, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, why these two names in specific? Because he's going to list out a whole lot of other names in the following 16 verses. But specifically, he starts with Abraham and with David. And so we'll start here um, in reverse order of what Matthew says. We're going to start with Abraham. Now, Abraham was a man who was living his life, um, and God shows up on the scene and invites him to follow him to follow him to a land that he hasn't seen yet, but a land that God has promised to him. And when God invites Abraham to step out in faith and follow him, um, he says these words to him in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. He makes this promise to Abraham if he would step out and follow him. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God made a a covenant promise with Abraham, a promise that he said he would fulfill, that through Abraham's family, every family on earth, all the nations were going to experience the blessing, the goodness of God displayed to them. And so in, in putting Abraham here in this, this opening verse about Jesus' life, it's like Matthew is zeroing in for us and saying, do you remember that promise? Do you remember that promise that God gave to our great-great-grandfather Abraham? that promise that through him and through his descendants, every family on earth was going to be blessed. Jesus is the one who fulfills that promise. Jesus is the one who fulfills that promise. The promise to Abraham of God blessing all nations through him. And so throughout Matthew's account of Jesus' life, he makes it a point to show Jesus going to the outsider and to the outcast, and ends his account of Jesus' life by having Jesus send out his followers to go make disciples of all nations. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through him, all nations on earth were going to be blessed. And then 
Matthew brings up Jesus being the son of David. Now, David is another man who God made a promise to, another covenant promise. But to David, he promised that he was going to make his name great and raise up descendants from his line who would sit on the throne of David. David was a king over Judah, that he, over Israel, that he would have a descendant of his who would rule on the throne eternally. You find this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God told him that if your sons will remain faithful to me, I will remain faithful to this promise that there will never be an end to the reign of your throne. And now the, the history of David's descendants, we see them listed out here in the, in the 16 verses. Um, the history of these kings is that they, as a, as a whole, did not stay faithful to God. And yet, God remained faithful to his promise. There was a mixture of, of faithful and faithless kings. And eventually, when you see at the very end of this, of this listing, um, that you will see a king in verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Je Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel. Now this king, Jeconiah, was the last king to rule before Babylon came in and just wiped out Israel. And he was the last king in the, the legitimate line of David. The next king, there's one more king after him, but he was an uncle um, that came and reigned in his place. But then this was, this was the end of David's line. And it seemed like God's promise to David had been forgotten. And then there was a waiting for 600 years. 600 years of waiting. And now Matthew is writing the story saying that Jesus has arrived on the scene. A descendant of King David and one who would reign, and where David's descendants had been faithless, here is one who's going to reign in righteousness and justice, who will remain true to God. And God's promises, once again, are being fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises. And now there's even more to this genealogy, and we'll just get into it just really quickly. Um, in verse 17, we read that, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And now we look at this and we think, like, okay, great, <laughs> right? Three sets of 14. But for the, um, for the Hebrew people who would have been reading this, uh, the way that their alphabet and numerical system worked um, is they were one and the same. And so letters would get uh, a numerical value, and that's how they would write out their numbers. So for us, we've got A, B, C, but we also have one, two, three. But for them, if they were looking at our alphabet, A would be one, B would be two, C would be three, right? And so... 
They like to play a lot with numbers and letters um, just because that's, that's the way that they, they like to write. And so when you look at King David's name, um, again, the Hebrew, Hebrew language is different than ours, and so they didn't write out their vowels. But what we translate as DVD, right, those, the numerical value of those letters in David's name um, would have been four, six, and four which would add up to 14 years. Some of you are really good at your math. Way to go, you haven't forgotten it. Yeah, and so it's almost like as, as Matthew is in putting together this account, right, he's arranging it in a way, and not just, not just arranging it, but he comes back and like highlights it for us in verse 17, um, that all of this is pointing to the fact that Jesus is like this new King David. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. And now in order for Matthew to get to the 14, 14, and 14, I hate to break it to you, but he does like play fast and loose with some of the actual names and numbers, right? He cuts out some people, um, but this was totally legitimate and appropriate in the time. Again, because this was not like an ancestry.com thing, um, but again, it was to tell a story. And so we see that throughout scripture, that sometimes like one king would be described as the son of so-and-so, when really he was like the grandson or the great-grandson. But the reason for that would be to show that he acted like that his predecessor, whether good or bad. So this was a normal thing to happen at the time. Um, so Matthew arranges the names in a way to, to highlight for us that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David and to Israel. And then he goes on even further from there. Um, there are a couple of names. You'll see them in verse 7 and verse 10 of Matthew chapter, chapter 1. In verse 7, we see the name, and some of your translations, might, it might be different, um, but in many of our translations, in verse 7, we'll see the name um, Asaph, and in verse 10, we'll see the name Amos. These were not actually ancestors of Jesus. And the original readers would have known this, right? Because they, again, they knew these names well. They would have read through, and all of a sudden, they would have come across Asaph and Amos, and they'd be like, hang on, wait a minute. That's not the right person here. But what Matthew did, it's sort of like he was doing a genealogical pun, okay? And puns don't always go over well in every scenario. Um, but he's doing a genealogical pun. He changed the name Asa um, to Asaph, just changed a couple of letters and put in a new person. And then he changed Amon in verse 10, again, changed just a letter and turned him into Amos. Now, why would he do this? Again, because he knew his readers, he knew they were smart, he knew that they would recognize the names and know what he was doing. And what he did is he changed the names um, of a couple of kings who were not the greatest kings. Um, one was like, sometimes was good, ended up not really being great. Um, and he changed them into Asaph, who was one of the psalmists, um, one of the men who wrote the, the, the songs to God that, that God's people would sing. And he changed Amon to Amos, who was a prophet. Again, why would Matthew do this? Because he wanted to point out and show to us that not only did God fulfill the royal promises that he had made to his people, 
but he was fulfilling the longings and the promises that were made through the Psalms and through the prophets. It's almost like that the entirety of scripture has been waiting for Jesus and here he is, here he is. Now, again, why some of your translations, you might not see those names, Asaph and Amos, is because some translations looked at it and they didn't get the pun. Um, and they're just like, oh, somewhere along the line, like somebody messed up some of the letters. So we better switch it back for you. So again, some of you might have it in your Bible. Some of you might not. But again, this, this pun is there to let us know that Jesus fulfills not only the royal hopes of Israel, but all of the hopes of the Psalms and the prophets. And then real quick, he also does something interesting with his genealogy here, Matthew does, by including um, four women in the account. Most genealogies back then would not have had women included, um, but what's really unique here is not only did Matthew include four women, but he included four women who were um, non-Jewish or associated with non-Jewish families. Now, normally a genealogy for a king or for a priest, you want to make sure that your, the genealogy proves that they're like pure blood, right, for lack of a better phrase, that they're like they're a legitimate heir. And so why would Matthew want to include some non-Jewish people into his genealogy if he wanted to prove that Jesus was the king? Now, I think the reason he included these non-Jewish women is because he wanted to show, again, the genealogy is telling a story about God. It's telling theology. And the theology or the story that he wanted to communicate is that this Messiah was not just for the Jewish people, but this was a Messiah through the Jewish people who would be a blessing to the entire world. Again, the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham that through you, all families on earth will be blessed. Okay, so the point of all of this, right? The point of all of these, um, the genealogies and the 14s and the women that were included, again, it's all to point to the awaited promised one, the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, to David, to Israel, the one that God's people had been longing for the one who we sing about when we say the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. But there's still more that Matthew wants to do in this story, right? Like those um, commercials on late night TV. There's more. There's more. And so when Matthew gets in, um, starting in verse 18, and he gets into the birth narrative of Jesus, it says, now the birth of Jesus as Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. 
Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did this, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son and named him Jesus. Throughout um, the beginning of Matthew's account of Jesus' life, just starting right here in verse 18, you go on for the next few chapters, and what's really unique is almost every single paragraph has an Old Testament prophecy that gets fulfilled. Almost every paragraph for chapters um, has an Old Testament prophecy or a promise about the Messiah that's being fulfilled in Jesus. And we see here it's, it's a promise about the virgin birth, about the Holy Spirit being the one to conceive the Messiah. It's a fulfillment of the prophecies. The name Emmanuel, God with us, a promise that God would be with his people and is being announced here to the descendant of David, to Joseph, that after years of waiting, God had come near. We'll read later that the Jesus being born in Bethlehem, you'll see in chapter 2, that was a fulfillment of prophecies about the Messiah coming. And then in chapter 2 also, that we know of it like the three kings, the magi, coming to worship Jesus. Again, a fulfillment of a prophecy that the nations are going to come and worship God. That, that people outside of the walls of Jerusalem, outside of the people of Israel, are going to come and worship God. And so we see, um, we see these foreigners coming to worship Jesus and honor him as king. But again, why does all of this matter? Promise to Abraham, promise to David, promise to the Old Testament prophets. Why does this matter? Because God is a faithful God who keeps his promises. And after years and years of waiting, God's people experienced the fulfillment. But for us today, does any of this make a difference in our lives? For us today, does any of this matter to us? And I would say it does because we too have to wait. Right there, there are so many places in our life that we find ourselves waiting. We wait in daily mundane ways. Again, right, waiting, waiting in traffic, waiting on flights, waiting for a table at a restaurant, waiting for a text back, waiting for recognition at work, right? There's the kind of like day in, day out types of waiting that we all have to do. But we also all wait in ways that leave us, us longing and desperate. Waiting for a relationship to be mended, waiting for painful memories to fade, waiting for a child to be reconciled, waiting for an addiction to loosen its grip, waiting for test results, waiting for a life partner, waiting to get pregnant, right? There, there's these kind of waitings that we all experience throughout our life, whether we're currently in a season like that or we'll be headed into one, where there's this deep longing, kind of a sense of, of desperation that comes with our waiting. 
But then we also are all in a place where we are waiting for the world to be made right. Right? When we look at the news around us and we see just tragedies and horrors. We all wait for the world to be made right, for the promise of tears to be wiped away, for the promise of wars and conflicts to cease, for injustice to end, or how one author put it, for everything sad to come untrue. Ultimately, we wait for Jesus' arrival. He has come and he's promised that he will come and we're left in this in-between time where we're waiting for Jesus' arrival when he comes to unite heaven and earth. And how we wait matters. As followers of Jesus, how we wait matters. We're not waiting like we're at the DMV, but our waiting is more like a pregnant mother. Where we're waiting, we're waiting for something really good on the other end. Or we're waiting like a weary worker who just can't wait for vacation to come. Or waiting like kids who are counting down on their advent calendar for Christmas morning to come. Right? That's the kind of waiting that we get as followers of Jesus because we know we follow a God who fulfills his promises. And so we know what's on the other end of our waiting. Problem is we don't know what the time frame is gonna look like. And that's really challenging. And so as we wait as followers of Jesus, should we wait as pessimists or optimists? What do you guys think? A lot of optimists, anyone think that we should wait as pessimists out there? Just interest, no, okay. Reality is optimists tend to see the world on the bright side, right? They see the bright side of things with a general sense that things are going to get better. Things are going to work out. Pessimists, on the other hand, um, see things, and this is really generalities, right? See the world um, and its realities and see there's no way for anything good to happen, that things are not going to work out, and that they're probably going to get worse and be worse than any of us expect. Right? Those are kind of the two options. Again, which one is right for a follower of Jesus? I would say pessimism is off the table. It seems like a general consensus here. And the reason for this is because what we confess about God and about Jesus is that there is a loving God who created the world and who set about a rescue plan right, to set things right. And that in his love and his grace, he rescues and redeems and restores, right? And so because of that, because of what we confess, it's hard for us to live as pessimists. Or maybe for some of us, it's not hard. I think, feel like I'm a pessimist sometimes. So, but maybe instead of saying it's hard for us to live as pessimists, we probably shouldn't as followers of Jesus. But I would also say that we don't live as optimists as followers of Jesus, Because we're not called to some kind of a naive hope that just ignores what's going on around us. Like, I'm going to ignore that there's wars all around and that there are people who are going hungry and that people who are unhoused, um, abuse that's happening around me, right? We're, We're not called as followers of Jesus to have blinders on and just believe, you know, things are going to be better, things are going to be better. 
But instead, I believe that how we wait as followers of Jesus, again, is not a pessimist, it's not as an optimist, but we wait as people of hope. We wait as people of hope who don't ignore what's going on around us, but we see the realities of the world around us. We see the realities that happen in our own lives and in our families' lives. We see the realities in our country and in the world around us. And despite the reality, we have an unwavering hope, a joyful expectation that we might not understand it, but we know the promise of God is that he is at work in Jesus Christ, bringing all things together, making all things new. This is the promise that we hold on to. And because of this promise, we can wait as people of hope. We wait with hope, but not hopes. We wait with hope, not hopes. We all have hopes and dreams, right? Hopes for our life and for the lives of the people that we love, hopes for our marriages, for family, hopes for career, hopes for financial security, hopes for health. So many hopes that we carry with us throughout our lifetime. And over the course of our life, these hopes will shift and change. There was a, um, a Serbian bishop named Nikolai Velimirovak. I can't pronounce his name, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he uh, lived during World War II, and he was actually imprisoned in Dachau. And he, he, made a, he wrote a, a, a collection of prayers as he was imprisoned. And he, he had this in one of, one of his collections. He said, do not grumble against heaven because it does not fulfill all your hopes. Grumble against yourselves because you do not know how to hope. Heaven does not fulfill hopes, but hope, singular. The most sublime and steadfast hope heaven always fulfills. Bishop Nikolai confronts us with the smallness of our hopes. And our tendency towards con our confusion of our hopes with the hope we find in Jesus. Because we all have hopes and dreams and wishes and longings. And these hopes, sometimes God does let us down. Right? How many of us can say that over our lifetime there have been hopes and dreams that we have had and, and we have felt let down by God? But the promise of God in Jesus is that in him we can find our hope, our singular hope. He is the one that we wait for. And no matter what our life circumstances might tell us, no matter if things are going well for you or things are going poorly for you, we can still hold on to a hope, knowing that God's promises to fix all that is wrong will come true. That God's promises to come back and make a new heaven and a new earth where all tears are wiped away, that he will fulfill this 
hope. Our hope is in Jesus and him being present with us as we wait for that future hope. But this is hard, (laughs) and this is not something that I am good at. I cling to my hopes. And I find myself disappointed, devastated, depressed, when God doesn't fulfill my hopes. I cling to my small hopes, and I find myself disappointed when I should be clinging to Jesus, who is the hope that will not let me down. Jesus who won't fail me, and Jesus who will be with me always. But can we just say it, it's hard, right? It's, it's hard to let go of our small hopes so that we can hold on to something greater, a hope that is not some, just some idea out there, but a hope that is a person a hope that is the person, Jesus. We wait with hope because God fulfills his promises. And that's what I think Matthew is trying to get out in in chapter one and the first couple of chapters in his account, is we are able to wait with hope because God has fulfilled his promises. We're able to hope for the future based on the past, right? That we can look back and see that God has been faithful that God is faithful and God will be faithful. And then we wait with hope, trusting in God's creativity and freedom to do things in surprising ways. God seldom fulfills his promises to us in a straightforward way. He seldom fulfills his promises to us in a way that we'll expect. He promised a king on the throne of David and he sent a baby in a manger to a poor family in Nazareth. Right? That, that was not an expectation that anyone had. He fulfilled his promise, but in a creative way that nobody would expect. He promised that the government would be upon Jesus' shoulders. And instead of Jesus taking over Rome. He had the government on his shoulders as Rome put a cross across his back. Right? God seldom fulfills his promises in ways that we expect. God promised freedom to his people from the oppression of the nations around them. And instead of overthrowing Rome, he took on a different enemy. He took on the enemy of Satan and death and sin. And he brought about freedom, but it was in a way that nobody expected. He, God made a promise that his descendant, the descendant of David, would be victorious and would reign forever. And then the way he fulfilled this was by dying. right? Victory through death. Jesus fulfills the promises of God, but he does them in ways we wouldn't expect. We all have expectations of how God's going to fulfill his promises or how he should, right? Our prayers are full of our expectations for how God should act in our life. But let me just tell you, chances are God is going to surprise you 
by the way he fulfills his promises to you and by the way he answers prayers. It's not going to look like how you expect. It's probably not going to be in the time frame even that you would expect. But will we trust in God's creativity and freedom to do things in a way that doesn't make sense to us? That doesn't maybe even seem like it's going to work? Will we trust in God's freedom to do things in surprising ways? And maybe even ways that we wouldn't prefer? Think of Jesus in Gethsemane before he goes to the cross praying, crying out desperately to God, like, is there another way for this to happen? Sometimes the way God fulfills his promises in our lives are going to be in ways that we don't prefer, ways that might be painful and disappointing and heartbreaking. Will we trust that even in the heartbreak, even in the pain, that God is working out his promises, that he's working out his salvation in our lives, and he's working out his salvation in the world around us. So whether our circumstances are awful or amazing, we can have hope because it's not based in our circumstances. We could be going through the deepest, darkest season or the most, most joyful time, and Jesus will be there with us. This is our hope. God is working out his salvation in history and in our lives. There's this quote that I want to end with um, from Tim Mackey with the Bible Project. He says that Jesus meets us in the dark valleys of life where we are waiting for God to turn on the lights or to turn the lights back on. And he will. That is his promise. But it might, might take place in a time and in a way that we would not predict. And so this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, to communion, we have the, the bread and we have the cup. These are reminders to us that God fulfills all his promises. But it won't necessarily look like what we would expect or prefer. Nobody expected that God's salvation would look like him hanging on a cross. And so this morning as we come forward, you'll be invited to, to come forward as, as, um, as you're ready after we pray to be able to take the bread and dip it in the cup. And as you do that, just a reminder that God is faithful. Jesus' life shows us that God is faithful, but his faithfulness comes across in surprising ways? Will we trust in him even when it doesn't make sense, even when it looks like our hopes and dreams are dying on a cross? Because what we know of God is that there is resurrection on the other side of death. So Father God, this morning we come before you, the one who fulfills all his promises. We thank you so much for, for your goodness and for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have walked with humanity and walked with us through our faithless and wandering seasons. God, the times that we turned away from you, that you remained faithful to us. And we thank you that 
that what we see here through the, the cup and through the bread is your faithfulness to us through Jesus. God, we pray that, that as, as the bread and as the, the juice goes into our bodies, Lord, it would, it would be the reality of Jesus living in us. Promise of, of Emmanuel come, come near, God with us. Not just a God who is at arm's length, but a God who comes to dwell with us and to dwell in us. So we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray that we would experience you um, strengthening us for the seasons of waiting that we all have to endure. And that you would help a, a hope to be birthed anew in us. A hope that doesn't disappoint, but a hope that is firmly grounded in you because we know you have been faithful, you are faithful, and you will continue to be faithful to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.